0: Welcome to the NFL Legend Show on the Grilling Truth Sports Network. I'm your host for the NFL Legend Show, Mike Goodpaster, and we have a special guest tonight. Um, was trying to figure out how to introduce him, and I, I don't think by saying former head coach of the Houston Oilers from 1981 through 83 really gets it, and that's why I wanted to have the guy on the show. He helped integrate college football, uh, coached at Xavier University as the head coach, then of course was the Oilers head coach, but before that he was the defensive coordinator for the Love You Blue Oilers in the, in the late, mid to late 1970s. Help me welcome to the show Ed Biles. How you doing, coach? i'm doing fine how you doing how's the weather up there oh you know how the weather is up here you lived up here <laughs> <Lizzie>. <laughs> yeah that's why i moved to the
1: south no. no no we've had
0: no you get away from the
1: snow up there sometimes you don't. Know, it doesn't uh it doesn't excite you about maybe going back and visiting your
0: friends no it doesn't <laughs> yet that's some really good friends for that um let's start off uh let's go back to the beginning i know you're a native of redding ohio you won a state baseball championship there you want to talk to everybody a little bit about your life growing up what sports you played and what drew you to football
1: well i uh for whatever reason uh i'm not a big guy but back in those days uh, little guys could play all sports it wasn't the size that it was now Uh, actually uh It's going to sound like bragging, I'm not that type of person, but when I was in the uh, sixth grade at Reading High School, uh, they moved me up to the junior high basketball team. So that was quite a thing for a youngster to do at that time, and then uh, eventually when I got to high school, my freshman year at Reading High School, I played on the state championship baseball team, so obviously I played baseball for four years at Reading High School, played on the uh, basketball team, made three letters in basketball, and uh, was one of the leading scorers in the Cincinnati area back in those days. And then uh, same thing with football, played guard, about a 130-pound guard back in those days. My coach (laughs) said I was the tiniest little guard he ever had, toughest guy, never was hurt. So anyway, by the end of the year, year, I wound up uh, having made 12 letters, and uh, Woody Hayes offered me a scholarship. This was before he went to Ohio State. Woody Hayes offered me a scholarship to Miami, Ohio. In those days, uh, freshman Football and basketball players were not eligible to play on the varsity team. They had separate uh, football and basketball teams, and then the smallest minor score, tennis, golf, uh, baseball, etc. you could play. So I, actually, my freshman year at Miami University, I played on the freshman football team, uh, freshman basketball team, and on the varsity baseball team. Then I hurt my knee a little bit, and that kind of ended my uh, uh, active playing playing career. So, what drew you to want to be a coach? Well, I think my high school coach, his name was Kenny Powers, dead now. I think he was uh, instrumental in me wanting to become coach. Yeah, this is a funny story. <laughs> I was raised in the days of the depression back in the, back in those days. I'm 87 years old now, but uh, my grandmother, uh, she uh, you know, come up through the depression. She didn't want me to go into into teaching coaching. She wanted me to. Uh, go to Cincinnati Embalming School, and become an undertaker because the <laughs> theory was <laughs> people are always going to die. You're always <laughs> going to have a job. But that wasn't, for, that, that wasn't for me, but that was what my grandma's theory, theory was back in those the days. So uh, I decided I wanted to go into coaching, and then after I got hurt, well, I was fortunate, Eric Parsegian was able to, well, allowed me to start working and coaching when I was in college with the uh, my university team back back in those days. So uh when I graduated, I uh, this is a cute little story people can laugh about. I graduated in nineteen fifty three and became the first football coach they had at uh, Woodward High School in Cincinnati. I was a head football coach, uh, assistant basketball coach, uh taught four classes, made a big healthy sum of three thousand six hundred dollars. <laughs> That's pretty good money back then though, is not it? Well, it was decent money. That was pretty good. decent. Yeah, you could live on. Obviously, prices were Coke was the nickel six for a quarter, and hamburgers, white cancels were nickel six for a quarter. There was a different world uh, back back in those days. All right.
0: So, when you started coaching high school football, you couldn't have been a whole lot older than the players. What was that experience like for you?
1: Well, uh, I think the funniest experience that way, uh, and the carries through for me today uh yeah i was i wasn't even 21 i was i turned 21 was in that year and had a gentleman there was a basketball coach named of uh sid friedman and when i came in he <laughs> took me aside as a kind of as a mentor and he said to me he said ed now look you're 20 years old these high school girls are 16 said so not too much <laughs> younger than you he warned me to give me advice of uh don't ever let yourself be cut alone in your classroom with the door closed with any of those girls.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and the carryover value the funny carryover value of that was that obviously I'm smart enough to listen to him. But then uh shortly thereafter I became the head freshman football coach at Dave University and I was going into young you know, I was young again, married, but Going into homes to recruit these youngsters, and uh, I was about the same age as a lot of the uh, men and women, and I I always made it my point not to learn the the lady's name. I always would call the man by his name, Jack, whatever his name might be, but the lady's name I always called Mrs. Cooper, Mrs. Whatever it was, Mrs. Yeah. <laughs> Rostovich or Mrs. Abramwood. I didn't want anyone to think I was even flirting or doing anything that way. <laughs> and the carryover value of that was when I went in the pro league, it was kind of the same way with the players' wives. I never called the wives by the first name. I uh, called the players by the first name. Opposite, but the whole wives' name was always Mrs. But to this day, I'm terrible about ladies' names. I have a hard time remembering <laughs> ladies' names.
0: <laughs> hey, you're a man ahead of your time, because that's the way everybody's got to be nowadays.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but that's what it was.
0: Yeah, and then... In 1961, you said you were the Xavier Freshman coach. You were named the head coach at Xavier. Um, after two seasons, you compiled a record of 11-8-1. and one. You were offered a defensive assistance role at the University of Notre Dame under Eric Parsegian. Uh, what made you turn that down? Well, I had to make a decision whether I wanted to be a big fish in a
1: little pond or a little fish in a big pond. Is that simple. Basically, if I'd have gone to Notre Dame as assistant coach, I'd have been one of uh, back in those days, seven or eight. Now, seventeen or eighteen, I'd have been, a, you know, down the line. Or where I was, I was the head coach, and that's that, that Basically, that was my thinking. I decided to stay where, where I was at and uh, be the head coach and see what I could do. Go, go from there. That was the real reason I turned that job
0: down. All right, now, when you get to Xavier coming from the high school role, what do you think were the differences? What was the biggest adjustment to coaching college kids over high school kids?
1: Well, all three levels, levels—a high school, a college, and pros, Mike, are three complete different eras. Uh, it's all football, obviously. At the high school level, you are teaching fundamentals, teaching the youngster how to block, how to tackle, how to carry the football, how to not fumble, all the very fundamental things you are trying to teach a youngster at the high school level. When you move to the college level, it becomes such a recruiting race now. Uh, you know, the guy who gets the best toys wins all of it, so to speak. So recruiting at the college level, but now people won't understand it or they won't believe it or they won't think it. But when you go to the professional level, you almost revert back to what you're doing at the high school level because now at the professional level, you're coaching a youngster who was the best high school football player at his school. He got a scholarship to go to a big-time school. Uh, so he, and obviously he's drafted one of the very few that can be drafted into the NFL. So you're dealing with a guy who knows what football is all about. Now, he makes his money, gets increases in pay, by making pro bowl first second team, making the playoff uh all pro, whatever it might be. So what he wants you to do is make him a better football player. He will respect you regardless and again I was pretty short from my side to be coached in the NFL, but you earn their you have to earn the respect of a pro uh being a coach in the pro level by teaching them and making them be better football players.
0: Yeah, and when you look at it, you coached high school, you coached college, you coached in the NFL. Um, what gave you the greatest satisfaction out of the three? Wow, that's a, that's a, an interesting question. Uh, actually, you
1: get more satisfaction as you get older uh, when you hear from youngsters that you maybe taught at, at the high school level when they send you a nice note uh thanking you for keeping them from getting into trouble or maybe they was headed along the wrong direction at the high school level they could have went the wrong way could have got you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and then all of a sudden 10 15 20 years later they realize that you had a big influence on their life because you taught them discipline you taught them to be on time that the things that they have to do when they start working is be on time uh etc cetera, etc cetera. so you get a lot of satisfaction from that. And the same thing kind of happens at the, at the uh, uh, professional professional letter. Uh, uh, you get the same college thing that the youngster you And, you know, I have the, a youngster. Uh, I probably want to get into this a little bit later with you. But, as you know, I uh, broke the racial color barrier for black quarterbacks back in the 60s. Well,
0: well, well, let's go there, because that was actually my next question. And I think a lot of people don't know the story because, let's face it, a lot of people know Xavier as a basketball program. They don't know that there was a football program. And when you were there, you were very successful, which I would imagine is why they took you into the well, NFL.
1: I probably should have quit, Mike. My, my, uh, my first year as a head coach at Xavier University, because we couldn't get any better, actually <laughs> took Xavier, little Xavier down with beat University of Kentucky, which was obviously – Quite an accomplishment. Well, getting into what you're talking about, I get the uh, this was in the '60s now, different world now, racial wise than it was now. But I get a call from an Xavier graduate uh, who owned a couple Burger Kings in uh, Miami, Florida. Charlie krebs was his name. He called me. and says, "Coach," he said, uh, "there's a good quarterback down here that uh, nobody's going to give him a scholarship to because he's uh, he's black." He said, "You know, everybody not." Taking black quarterback, thinking back in those days was well, they wasn't smart enough, which obviously wasn't true. So I got some films on the on the Carol, looked at him, could could play, and I gave him a scholarship. And uh, he comes up to Xavier, and he was good. I had a good pitcher and a good catcher. Got name of Danny Abramowitz, who wound up playing for the uh, New Orleans Saints and had some pretty good records for the Saints back in those days. And Car Car Williams, a quarterback. We did a lot of short outs and et cetera won some pretty good uh, football games, one of them comes to my mind. Bo uh who was a coach at Miami at that time before he we went to Michigan, we uh, came from behind and beat them 29-28 to 28 and won the game. But anyway, getting back to the gist of the story, we uh, were undefeated, and we go down to play Chattanooga, down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Well, at that time, that was, uh, that was the backbone, the heart of the so-called uh, – Ku Klux Klan, really. It was a very, very bad situation, obviously. And the pregame meal is over, and uh, I'm in my room, waiting. You knock on the door from the trainer, he says, "Uh, Coach, Ray Baldwin was his name, he says, "Uh, Coach, we got a problem. What do you mean we got a problem? We just had a pregame meal, everybody's ready to go. He says, look out the window. Well, I look out the window in full gear. I thought there was about 5,000, probably about 500, 400, 500, but Full gear, dressed in the uh, top, the bottom, of the hoods, the hoods, the ro- robes, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I got to walk out of that hotel uh, with arm in arm with my quarterback, uh, Carol Williams, to the buses. And uh, can't I don't want to repeat over the <laughs> over the air. Yeah. Obviously, you can imagine I'm a nigger lover, and on and on and on. Terrible, terrible, terrible things they were saying to the both of us. And we're both scared, quite frankly. We're not sure that uh, they're going to shoot us uh, or maybe kill us, you know, that type of stuff. It was scary, very, very scary situation. But we made it to the bus, made it to the game. But the result of the story was uh, at the end of the that ball game, at the last play of the game, we kicked a field goal, and it went inside the right uh, uprights of the, of the goal post. But the officials said no good, waved it off, run off the field. Of course, there was no instant replay, no TV, no way you could do anything about it. And that gave us the first loss of the year. And by the time the end of the year came around, we'd only lost one game. And if we hadn't had that loss on a record, we'd have probably been in a bowl game. But that was quite uh, an experience. And the funny part of it, not funny part about it, but just what we were talking about a little bit here, uh, long ago, a well while back, uh, back in 2015, I get an email. talking about what you're talking about, uh, satisfaction, from Kara Williams. And on uh, July, the, July the 11th, Sunday, July the 11th, 2015, said, I have told many people throughout the years, Coach Ed Biles was one of the pioneer coaches who introduced the black quarterback to major college football. With the many achievements throughout your career as a coach, I think that's one of your primary achievements. Now, you can't buy stuff like that. You know what no. I'm saying, Mike? I mean, that's just kind of going back to what you talked about earlier. Satisfaction is not a thing, but that's. Uh, That young man, well, he's not a young man now. He's in his high 60s, early 70s now. But those are some of the things that make you feel good.
0: Well, see, and and that's one of the things that impressed me about your career, especially when I did the research, because you'll see high school kids saying that. You'll see college kids like Williams. I've talked to guys like Robert Brazil and Mike Stensrud, Greg Bingham, and all of them speak so highly of you. That's what impressed me. It it seemed that you had the ability to, to connect whether it was a 15-year-old or whether it was a 30-year-old man with a wife and three kids. And I think that most coaches anymore probably couldn't do that. And we've seen a ton of college coaches go to the NFL over the last five or six years that don't have that ability. Well, Mike, when you take that step, you have to be uh, very
1: smart about how you approach when You go from the college coaching job professional coaching job uh, and i'll go back to when i did that when i went from xavier university to uh, the new orleans saints i was smart enough maybe to know that i didn't know professional football so i knew that i needed to learn and know about football. i knew i could coach but i knew it was going to be adjustment and a change and uh, there was a great football player of the new orleans saints his name was uh, doug atkins who yeah. was in the pro football hall of fame he was actually a uh, Chicago He's talking Bear. about a great athlete at University of Tennessee. He was an All-American football player, All-American basketball player, and All-American track. Played with the Bears. When I went with the Saints, it was an expansion team, and expansion in those days was completely different than it is now. In those days, the teams would put five guys that, that they knew was at the end of their career, was going to be finished, and put them on the uh, roster to be claimed by the, uh, by the Saints in that partic- particular case. But anyway... I was smart enough, don't ask me why, but I was smart enough to want to Doug, and I said, look, Doug, uh, I don't think I know everything about pro football. Uh, You have been playing pro football as long as I've been coaching. Uh, I'd appreciate if you'd help me. Uh, I said, if you think you see me doing something wrong, don't be afraid to come and tell me that – that's not – that's the difference in the college level and the professional level. And I think I earned a lot of respect by taking that approach instead of making it look like I thought I knew everything like a lot of coaches have a tendency
0: to do. Yeah, and your first job in the NFL, I think, was given to you by Coach Tom Fears. Uh, you yes. want to talk a little bit about those Saints teams because I remember – I've interviewed a lot of guys that played with that first Bengals team. It had a lot to do with it. And I've even read before where when the Bengals did the supplemental draft or whatever they called it back then, that they would actually draft players that they found out later. I think one of them had passed away a year before and they didn't even know because the scouting wasn't as advanced as it is today. Uh, You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think the Saints, when you got there, were in what, their third year? Maybe the fourth year?
1: Uh, it's well. My first year, I went in as the uh, special teams coach, and uh, again, I had to learn, in my mind, the respect of of the players, and I earned the respect for the players by doing a good job coaching a special team, Not not acting like I knew everything. Not acting like I, you know, thought I was the best in the world, etc. The ego—you got to worry about your ego from a lot of coaches' standpoint. They got egos that are so big that uh, they don't think anybody else knows anything. But anyway, I did a good job coaching the special team. I think probably the the one play that stands out in my mind with that was that uh, in the college level, I'd gotten away with a, a kickoff return where you start running up the middle and we get up half 30, 30 yards. Like so the uh, running back would turn and lateral the ball some guy come from the other side and uh, made a big game. Well, called that against. Uh, Atlanta Falcons and Tom Burrington was a running back at that time. He made a big gain out of down about the 30-yard line, and it's kind of one of those things that nobody had done in the Pro League before. I think that was what maybe established myself in the fact that getting respect from the football players of New Orleans But that was a different world back in those days. I mean, the guys were all on the last stage of their career. Uh, We played in old Tulane Stadium. We didn't have the fancy super know at that time the money was so completely different what the players made uh, Mike back in those days in fact my first job in the NFL as special teams coach of the uh, New Orleans Saints I made fifteen thousand six hundred dollars and I was glad to get it that was nice you know nice salary but that's what things was back in those and the players you couldn't have uh, all these off-season programs that they have now you know they they get, make so much money. They don't have off-season jobs. Back in those days, the players, when the football season was over, had to get jobs to prepare themselves for their future life. So, again, you didn't have all these off-season weight training uh, programs that they have now.
0: Yeah, and in your second season with the Saints, I think you guys started off like 1-5-1. and You guys, Coach Fears got terminated. I think all you guys were out with him. You picked up with the Jets. But you want to talk what it was like to be in that situation where you're halfway through the season, it's your life's work, and all of a sudden you find out that you guys have been terminated.
1: Well, <laughs> well that was kind of a, <laughs> a strange – you're bringing back some old memories. That was kind of a strange situation. Uh, back in those days, uh, the players almost – there was no player salary chap, no no guide that way. So each player, no agents involved. Uh, each player negotiated his own contract with the team. He didn't have, uh, you know, any agents back in those days. But as he negotiated their contracts, the uh, general managers would almost put in the in the contract, "You do not tell anybody how much money that you are making." That was just a no-no. They didn't want they didn't want me to know what you were making, and vice versa on, on the teams. But we had a quarterback by the name of Billy Kilmer. And Billy Keller was dating John Meekham who was the owner dating uh, his secretary <laughs> and Meekham, for whatever reason thought that, uh, <laughs> that Billy was getting the information about the contract from, from the secretary. And he actually got mad about it and came to Tom fears and told Tom fears, you got to trade him and get rid of him. Well, that was a bad situation. In fact, probably had a big uh, effect on uh, Archie Manning's career because he was coming out of Mississippi. He was going to be our draft choice, but he'd have been a backup just like Aaron Rodgers did to Brett Favre but said the ones can go that way. He'd have been a backup for a couple years before he stepped in, but the fact that we had to trade Billy Kilmer uh, to Washington was the best thing ever happened to Billy because he went up there and played behind, uh, I forget his name, but anyway, length of his career. wasn't it? Sonny Jorgerson, yeah, he went behind him. And anyway, uh, because of that, Archie had to start. And, of course, with not a good team, you get the heck beat out of a quarterback that way. And that's kind of one of the after effects of those type of things. So, uh, But Billy, and I told Billy, man, that thing happened here. You. You're going to go up there, sit on a bench and make pretty good salary.
0: Yeah, and he eventually <laughs> ended up being the quarterback in Super Bowl Seven, playing for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jersey got hurt or something of that nature back in yeah. Second, yeah. Um, Then you get the job with the Jets, so you spent the next two seasons under the leadership of head coach Weeb Eubank, who'd led the Jets to that miraculous Super Bowl three upset. Um, you want to talk a little bit about Coach Eubank and working with him?
1: Oh, well, Coach Eubank, uh, it's kind of a funny situation, too. Uh, coach, Weebanks, uh, Co- coach Weeb uh, hired me at the Jets, And when he retired, I wound up, Coach Sid Gilman hired me down here in in Houston. And it was uh, both great coaches. Uh, Weeb was like uh, working for your grandfather. Uh, He would ask you, how's your family, all that type of stuff. Thanksgiving Day, we would practice in the morning. He'd have Thanksgiving dinner at the stadium for the family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And (laughs) Sid was, uh, I got to be careful how I say this. (laughs) Sid couldn't say two words without some words that I don't want to say on the phone, but Sid just was a a cussing giant, so so, so to speak. (laughs) So it was like one extreme to the other, both of them good coaches, uh, both of them in the Hall of Fame, and incidentally, it's kind of an odd situation. My son, I went to the Hall of Fame for uh, Robert Brazil, and my son said, Daddy said, "Uh, do you know that the three coaches that hired you were in the Hall of Fame? I didn't pay attention to that, but Tom Fears is a player who hired me in New Orleans. And then Weeb and Sid uh, hired me in New York. So three hosts in the Hall of Fame, they hired me. So nothing about me to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and when you talk about Sid Gilman, he was one of the great offensive minds in the history of the NFL. Um, you want to talk a little bit about him, his work ethic, and what you learned from him?
1: <laughs> I think the most important thing I think I learned from Sid was uh, – the importance of special teams. Sid was a great offensive-minded football coach. He didn't care much about defense at all. I think sometimes with the defensive coach, we felt like Sid was to score so he could get the offense back on the field, said offense, offensive record. But he was a great, great offensive mind. But the one thing that I learned back in those days is that the importance of special teams. He really, really, really emphasized uh, special teams. We spent a lot of time on special teams, but he was really a tough, tough, tough old codger back back in those days. We uh, he had taken over here, and they had been one and thirteen, and uh, one and thirteen. And the first uh, first meeting, we're, we're sitting in, we're getting ready to practice. In fact, we were practicing Huntsville, Sam Houston State, up in up in Texas here, right next to the prison, at the very. First meeting we sit down in and uh, they talk about, you know, practice plan and all of a sudden they come to the part which they call skeleton, which is uh, seven on seven. You, you get most practices, you begin with the uh, individual, then you go into group, and then you go into team, and group consists, lots of time of the uh, offensive quarterbacks and receivers and running backs working against the, the defensive linebackers, secondary, that they call seven on seven. Well, everybody is very careful don't want to get guys hurt, but we, they finished practicing. King Hill said, uh, all right, we're going to have the, the uh, skeleton pass thing, and Sid stands up and sits up, and we're going to do it live. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, does, nobody does it live. Well, every coach there that looked up at Sid and said, you know, I don't know who said it, one of our coaches said, Sid, we're going to get guys hurt. Well, I don't want to use the word that he used, but basically it was we don't care. They've been so bad they get hurt so what? They can't. so we scrimmage skeleton live. And he did a he did said was a was a great person and, and, and a great coach, but he was personality was uh, completely different. In fact, uh he made uh one of the best trades that didn't get much credit for here. Uh he wanted to put in the uh now everybody calls it the three four defense. But there was only one team back there, the Miami Dolphins with Don Shula and Bill Arnsparger. They were the first team to put the three man line in. And they called it the 53 because they didn't have any name to put on it. They had a linebacker, they had Bob Mathis, whose number was 53. So yeah. he uh, called it. Uh, we looked at all the film of that, of that, of that team to see uh, how come they were undefeated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And looking at the film, we realized that the key to the 3-4 defense was you had to have a nose guard, a good nose guard. If the center can block the nose guard one-on-one, you can't have that defense. So in looking, we realized that we needed a nose guard. He traded a a defensive tackle. I won't mention the guy's name, but he couldn't play. To Kansas City, and he got Curly Culp and a draft choice. The draft choice, Robert Brazil. So we wound (laughs) up getting the nose guard who nobody could block one-on-one, and the linebacker who was one of the best to ever play, ever play the game, uh, Robert Brazil. That was the beginning of the uh, putting together of uh, the staff that eventually got the Love You Blue stuff going here when, when Bum took over, and uh, Sid was responsible for the good portion of, of starting that. starting that.
0: Yeah, and Sid retired at the end of, I think, 74, 1975. Bum Phillips becomes the head coach. Named you the defensive coordinator. You want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Coach Phillips?
1: <laughs> well, that's kind of a funny story too. Uh, Sid Gilman, Sid hires Bum and I. Well, my family was in New York. I was coaching with the Jets, and Bum's family was in Oklahoma. He was coaching Oklahoma State at that time. So, actually, Bum and I lived together in a place down here in the gardens of her. It was a new apartment complex. But we actually lived together for about two and a half months while you know again my family was in New York just was there. We wound up uh coming out to an area called Quail Valley here, which was uh at that time the very first golf course home developed in the whole Houston area. We wound up buying homes close to each other. That was the beginning of our relationship uh uh then bum would uh pick me up every morning, he'd drive a pickup truck and he'd pick me up my house and he'd slide over to the passenger seat. I would drive the truck down to work and come back every night. So we were extremely close for a long, long time and he was almost was a different kind of person too. He, the coaches uh couldn't do there's no coach that is, was able to uh be with his players and do the things that bummed uh, you can't picture coaches uh Going out and drinking beer with their players, Bum did that. uh He had, he was fortunate that Sid got some good assistant coaches that knew what they were doing. But you know, you can't picture uh, Bear Bryant or Tom Landry or Don Shula or any of the great coaches in the Hall of Fame going out and drinking beer with their players. But that was Bum.
0: Maybe and, John uh, Madden. Inter- yeah, you know, John Madden might. Mike might huh? <laughs> yeah, no,
1: none of those guys did it. Nobody nobody I, I don't know of any other coach yeah. in the history of the game who did it. But it was natural for him. That's the way he was. He was that kind of he was that kind of a person, good, a good a very, very good person, but he was very good about uh letting his coaches coach. I was his defensive coordinator for uh, six years, I think it was six or seven years, and never once did he ever come into a meeting and uh, never one time, and one time, it's kind of a cute story, too, only one time did he ever say anything during the course of the game where we go play the Miami Dolphins uh, down at Miami. And I had a theory when I was the defensive coordinator that when you were backed up on your side of the 50, you would play conservative, not ultra-conservative, but didn't worry about doing a lot of blitzes. But once you crossed the 50-yard line and were starting going in, maybe the chance to score. I wanted to gamble a little bit, called blitzes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I call a uh, strong safety blitz against the Dolphins, about 35 yards. line. they made a play. I think, the picture of about 20 yards on it. And Sid came down the sideline, and said to me, he said, Ed, he said, that's the dumbest call I've ever seen you made. And like a Weisheimer, I don't know why it made me think about it, but I said, well, bum, why'd you tell me before the play? You know, that <laughs> but he was uh, he allowed his coaches to coach. And like I said, he had such a great relationship. And also at that uh, uh, particular time here in Houston, he was a perfect guy for the job, the cowboy hat, the cowboy boots. That was when the uh, country Western in Houston was at its highest he had Mickey Gillies and uh, all that type of stuff going. On. He had all kind of country Western stores. Was he was a perfect man for this situation. And when he moved from here the New Orleans was not a complete different fit. He didn't fit in in New Orleans like he fit here. But, oh, he and I spent many, many hours together and uh, got nothing but great respect for him. In fact, <laughs> that's another cute story. <laughs> he came to me and uh, he said, uh, Wade, his son, who's a great coach, he came to me and he said, uh, Ed, he said, uh, I was a defensive quarter, he says, I'm thinking about hiring my son Wade, uh It's working with the defensive line or linebacker, and I don't know. Like a Weisheimer, I said, "Well, Bum, can he coach? You know, he's probably going to hire him anyway." But obviously, <laughs> he said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, don't penalize him because your son. Go ahead and hire him." That was the hiring of Wade, Wade Phillips with the Houston Oilers when he first started out. Great, and, and Wade is actually a complete different personality than than Bum was.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we'll get to Wade in a minute. So <laughs> let's see. When we get to 1975, uh, you guys drafted the perfect outside linebacker for what you were doing in Robert Brazil. Uh, Robert's been on this show a multitude of times. He's a great guy. Um, the thing about him is this. When I tell people, you know, I, I, we had him on the show in like 2015, the first year we did this, because I thought mm-hmm. he deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. And I would get all these people, even the guy that was the co-host of the show would say, like, who's Robert Brazil? And then there's this Tums Neutralizer video that they put out in, like, the early 80s or the late 70s. And I'd always have them watch it. And the thing that everybody always came back with was this. That looks like Lawrence Taylor. And Uh, I I think this. You know, Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells get a lot of, you know, accolades for the way – they used Lawrence Taylor, but I think they were copying what you guys were doing in Houston from the mid and late '70s. And you want to talk a little bit about that and what Robert Brazil? Yeah, well, the the, the
1: the only difference was is that the Lawrence Taylor played in New York, and yeah. they went to the Super Bowl. If we had uh, ever gotten by Pittsburgh, uh, we lost the two the championship games in at Pittsburgh. If we had ever won one of those games and got into the uh, Super Bowl, uh, Robert Brazil would have been recognized exactly the same as uh, Lawrence Taylor. He was every everything that Lawrence Taylor could do, uh, Robert could do, and Robert was a little bit bigger and faster. But the, the fact that uh, he, you know, we never made it past the Pittsburgh and those games was a deterrent for Robert to getting into the Hall of Fame. He's well-deserved being in the Hall of Fame. He is uh one of the great uh football players of all time. He was one of the guys that was always out to practice early. He would run and run and run and run all during practice and still is ready to run. Uh, I got nothing but the highest respect in the world. Uh, one of the best football players that uh, that I have coached and another one of those funny things I didn't realize when we went up to the Hall of Fame my son reminded me, he said, Dad, he said, you realize you're on a staff of uh, 18 guys are in the hall of fame. Well, I had no idea. I don't pay attention to that, that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, Robert is a outstanding person. We had a, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that, uh, very few times he was so good that, uh, he might make a mistake, but he had the, the speed to recover and overcome the mistake. And that not many football players can do that. If they make a mistake, they get in trouble, but he could overcome that. And, uh, he deserves every accolation he gets.
0: All right, nineteen seventy-five, your first year as a defensive coordinator for the Oilers. The Oilers went ten and four. I don't think people know this fact. I think the nineteen seventy-five AFC Central may have been the toughest division in football history because you had the Steelers at twelve and two. Um, Paul Brown, Cincinnati Bengals were eleven and three. You guys were ten and four. All four losses were to Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, and three of those losses were by less than a touchdown. You guys had to get the feeling that something special was getting ready to happen in Houston.
1: Well, you know, you don't think about that when you're coaching and when you're going through those kind of things. Mike, You're concerned about winning the next football game and concerned with uh, trying to get to that playoff because, again, (laughs) you get a little extra money back in those days. I mean, not much compared to what they're getting now, but... You know, if you got to the playoff championship game, if you win, you might get 10,000 extra dollars, which on top of a little bit you was making back in those days was good money. But you had that incentive of wanting to, wanting to get to the Super Bowl. And uh, yes, it was unfortunately both Cincinnati and Pittsburgh were very good at that time. We held our own pretty good with, uh, with Cincinnati, but we couldn't get by, uh, Pittsburgh mainly because of their great defense, uh, There, well, Bradshaw was another quarterback, and I don't mean this wrong. The Pittsburgh Steelers won, beat us because of their defense in the championship playoff games. Earl Campbell made 54 yards one game and 75 the other. Earl, which was the rock of our offense, uh, Pittsburgh just had too many great players. Uh, You know, when you're coaching, you don't like it at that particular time. But now, as I look back. I realized that, well, they got about 12 guys in the Hall of Fame. We got four or five, and that was the difference. We couldn't move the ball. What do the things we did to get there, uh, we couldn't do that uh, against uh, Pittsburgh. We had some pretty good tips uh, against Pittsburgh. It's one of the things that I – I'm going to brag a little bit about myself now, but one of the things that I did as a uh, defensive uh, coordinator was look for tips uh, that players would give us. And one of the tips on uh, Terry Bradshaw – when Terry Bradshaw would back out straight from the center, he was either going to throw the ball to the left or to the middle. If he turned coming out, he was going to throw the ball to the right or to the middle. Well, your free safety, our free safety, could get a great jump on the ball, but they had Swan and Stallworth. You might have them double-teamed. They go up and take the, take the ball away from that kind of stuff. And incidentally, uh, I have never sh- shared this before. I don't know if anybody knows this, but one of the biggest upsets in the playoff history was uh, – the. I don't remember what year it was. We it was to
0: 1979, play, uh, Ed. you well, jumping we ahead on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing what? You're jumping ahead on hey, me. But it's oh, I, well, I'm, I'm it's one of my favorite <laughs> games of all time because I think it's the greatest upset of all time because to set it up, the week before you guys had played, I think it was Denver, in one of the most violent games you'll ever see defensively. You guys won 13-7. to You lose Kenny Burrow, yeah. Dan Pastorini, Earl Campbell, I, I think they're favored by, like, 14 points. You got Eric Coriel. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah and then I'll, I'll let you tell the story from there, but go well, ahead.
1: They were favored by about 16 and a half. We had all the guys hurt that you were talking about. Actually, our backup running back, got name of Ron uh, Carpenter, he got off the plane in San Diego on crutches and wound up playing
0: the next broken day. Broken foot, wasn't
1: it? Giff- Gifford Nielsen, our a backup quarterback as a starter, uh, but we, uh, I had spent a lot of time looking for a tell. And in looking at Dan Fouts, I found out uh, that uh, when he came up to the line of scrimmage, if he put uh, both his feet parallel to each other, that they were going to run the ball. So it was 100% correct. So our defensive signal oh, colleague, Greg Bingham, he would call army, army, army. Forget the pass, go get the run, everybody play the run. Now, if Dan came up and had his feet staggered, he put his right foot forward, his left foot back, then it was a pass. And the Bingham was the only one who was allowed to do it, he had a pretty good discipline. Bingham would call Air Force, Air Force, Air Force, that type of stuff, which tells everybody defensive lineman don't worry about the run, go get the quarterback. Defensive backs, play pass, don't run about filling up the running game. And actually, uh, our strong safety, uh, Vernon Perry, who's a great strong safety and a great football player and a real good friend of, of Robert Rizild, uh he got four interceptions in that game. I think it might be a record that still stands. But uh, that was all come about because a lot of extra time is spent looking at uh, films and, um, on the team and trying to figure out tells to help, help your football players.
0: Yeah, and the thing about Vernon is, I think in the 77 Gray Cup, which he played in, he intercepted like three passes and won the Gray Cup. And then he picks off the three or four passes in the playoff game. And then I think, didn't he get a pick six to start the 79 championship game? Mm, Yeah, you may be right. You may
1: be be right. He he made a lot of great great plays and uh, was an outstanding uh, strong safety. He was a very good strong safety. All right, so. But anyway, that was a. That was probably the, That's in the top ten, obviously, upsets in uh, playoff game history, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I, I think it is. I actually wrote two articles in the last five years about it. That's how much I like the game. Um, 1978, you guys drafted Earl Campbell. And offensively, you guys had been a little bit behind. You had Earl Campbell, Dan Pastorini, though. I mean, you talked about Rob Carpenter, who was a really good running back also, Kenny Burrow. So the offense was now catching up to the defense a little bit at least. Still mainly a defensive team. But I think when everybody talks about the greatest Monday night football game of all time, and they were all bringing up that Chiefs-Rams 54-51 Miami game. Miami Dolphins. Yes. Miami the Dolphins. Miami Dolphins, 1978. I would have been like nine or ten years old. I'm a Cincinnati Bengals fan who is actually singing the Love You Blue song by the time that game's over. I mean, <laughs> well, that atmosphere, and unfortunately <laughs> – I didn't become a Houston owner fan. I still became – I was still a Bengals fan. I've suffered for that Well, in you, the live up, 40 you live up. you
1: live up that way. You should. You're I know, but I, I, I shouldn't Bengals. have. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no. you, well, you want to talk a little that, bit that, that about that game well, and that, that atmosphere? The well, the atmosphere
1: was uh, – you know, it was a good football game. And I, this is another thing that people don't realize. When you're down on the sidelines coaching – you really, 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 very rarely do you have any idea about the crowd noise. Your your mind is, what's the next play? What's going on? You're not paying any attention to the atmosphere of the crowd. But that particular game and the run with Earl was probably the only time in my coaching career that I ever heard the crowd noise being so loud. And that was the beginning of the so-called Love You Blue, Earl Campbell era here, in Houston, playing the Dolphins, who was a great football team at that time, and Earl made that great run down the sideline, and the place just went just went completely crazy as he made that run down the sideline. But that was a, a historic moment in the Houston Oilers football.
0: Yeah, and we talk about that time in Houston Oilers football. What was it? What was the atmosphere around the city during those two or three years? Because it seemed to be electric, and still, even to this day. I mean, there's Facebook group pages just exactly for this team. And I think it was something that you very seldom see, the love affair between a team and a city, the way you had for a few years with that. Well, the whole thing kind of revolved about uh, that
1: era, which was kind of the country-western era time in Houston, Texas. You had Gillies, the... uh, uh, dancing
0: in the country western dance joint. Yeah, he had urban country. cowboy with John Travolta and Sissy Spacek. <laughs>
1: yeah, all that type, all that type of stuff was going on then. And bum, uh, you know, being the cowboy that he was, he had the cowboy boots and the cowboy hat. He fit right into that atmosphere. Everything really uh, evolved into being the perfect setting, the perfect feeling. And then those two school teachers, two lady school teachers, the. Came up with that uh, that song, Love You Blue song. Uh, they got uh, they didn't get the credit for it. Someone else took it, but it was two school teachers who came up with that song that just that atmosphere uh, just went right into the atmosphere of everything at that particular time. And another thing along those years, uh, we get beat by Pittsburgh, and season is over, and we're we're flying back from Pittsburgh, and uh, the. Uh, pilot comes on the, uh, on the airplane phone and tells everybody that, uh, well, when we land, you can't go home. You got to go to the Astrodome. Well, the players, you know, all of us, including the coaches, man, we're we're moaning and groaning about that. I mean, it, you know, the season was over and they're drinking like mad on the plane and Bum was drinking. And some of the things that was said, he said would probably would have been said if <laughs> he had had a couple beers in it. But we, anyway, yeah, none of nobody wanted to go there. We'd say, "Oh, there's gonna be forty people there. You know, that, why do we want to go there? Why do we have to go?" Everybody's moaning about. It. Well, we get up, land at the airport, and we get on the buses, and of course, instead of going to the field where our cars were at, we go to the dome. Well, when we came down into the, in the, uh, the Astrodome, and they raised the, uh, the you know the the, the, the the barrier to get in, and man, when we come in there, and that place was. Packed. I mean, just completely packed. That was another one of those outstanding memories you have. Where we came down in there, and all those people were there. Uh, it was something. But like I said, originally everybody was moaning, going, "You know, our season was over. We didn't go." There. But the reactions of people being so loyal, and uh, that whole party atmosphere was just something. I mean, that's something will probably never be duplicated again in any place.
0: Yeah, and if you think about that team in '78, you guys beat the Patriots in New England uh 79 you beat Miami I think in Miami in the or no wait 78 you beat Miami in Miami so you guys won 3 or 4 road playoff games the only home game I think you got was against Denver in the 79 wild card what was it like the Steelers rivalry with the Oilers
1: Well it was a a great you know, great rivalry, obviously. We wanted to beat them, and they wanted to beat us. And it was, as you had mentioned earlier, at that time, probably the toughest uh, division uh, in NFL football. Uh, you know, you don't want to get beat. And if a team is beating you You know, you don't think. Uh, back then, I didn't think about the fact that uh, they had all these Hall of Famers. The only thing I could think about was, how can we beat these guys? How can we win? Uh, we had one one situation that actually uh, was the beginning of instant replay. It was one of those games where uh, Mike yeah. Renfro made a great catch, uh, uh, come down in the end zone. We all thought we had a touchdown, but uh, as soon as I saw the one official look for the other official for help, I I thought, well, we're screwed. I said, wait on the side, said, they're going to take that away from us because the guy who on top of it didn't make the play, and usually the guy won't overrun it. But anyway, that was a play that uh, we would have been in the head late in the third quarter. Don't know whether we'd have won the game or not. But that was really a, a tough thing that happened to us with the with Renfro the Renfro catch, so to speak. And uh, what would happen in the fourth quarter? I don't know. They were off, off off for good. Whether we could stop them or not, who knows? But that actually was the beginning, Mike, of uh, instant replay in the National Football League later on.
0: Yeah, that's what I ever got, but what got everybody fired up about it? Because I think at the time, the game was seventeen to ten. It would have tied the game going to the fourth quarter. Who knows what happens then? Um, oh, I
1: think it might. I don't know what I don't mean to correct you. I think it would have put us ahead. I'm not real sure. Uh, it was something. It was close. So we either went ahead or been tied, like you said. Yeah, but, it, it was, yeah, either it was seventeen
0: play. to ten, or it was seventeen to thirteen. Either way, it took away your best opportunity to win the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, another game in 1979 that sticks out to me that I've really never heard any of these guys talk about, and I've interviewed a lot of them and I haven't asked, It was the 79 Thanksgiving Day game in Dallas. Because I think that was the game that really ge- legitimized you guys as a Super Bowl contender and a real threat to Pittsburgh, just the fact that you could go into Dallas and beat Roger Stallback, Tony Dorsett, and those guys.
1: Yeah, Roger Stahlbach is. Uh, and they talk about. Uh, I'm going di- to divert a little bit from uh, what the question you asked me. Uh, Roger Stahlbach. Uh, I knew Roger Stahlbach back when he was playing
0: high school football in Cincinnati, Ohio. Roger Bacon, wasn't it? Was it Roger Bacon or Purcell Marion?
1: Purcell, Purcell.
0: Okay.
1: He was a P- Purcell High
0: School. I was the head coach at Xavier
1: at that time. Uh, I tried to recruit Roger, like, mad, uh, two of his players that was on his team with him, got name Roger Thiesing and Jim Higgins. I got them. Roger Stahlbach would have wanted to go to Notre Dame and he would he'd crawl on his knees to go to Notre Dame, but Joe Coherick was a coach, didn't offer him a scholarship. Roger Stahlbach also the uh, uh, Ohio high school all star game. Roger didn't start as a quarterback his senior year. The coach Captain uh, Ankeny, Ben Ankeny, had a had his uh, cousin whose <laughs> name uh, Ankeny, I may have the name wrong, but Ankeny was uh, the quarterback. So he actually started his his relation over Roger Stolbach. <laughs> And Then since Notre Dame didn't get Roger a scholarship, but I kept trying to recruit him. Well, Roger, <laughs> the uh, Navy Academy didn't really know whether they want to give Roger a scholarship or not they came up with this thing that he had a math deficiency. Most people probably don't know this, but Roger Stahlbach went to New Mexico military Academy for one year uh, to overcome that math deficiency. While he was at New Mexico military Academy, about once a month I'd bring Roger and the Jim Higgins into my office. They have him call Roger, uh, try to get him to come back to Xavier, <laughs> but he wanted to go to Navy and, uh, what a great man. He, he went a little bit more of his story. Great man. I actually, uh, if he'd have got into politics, he'd be the president of the United States. That's the kind of person he is. And I'll tell you how good a person he is. When he sold his company, he gave 70% of the money to all his employees. That's Roger, Roger Stahlbach. No one's any closer than Roger Staubach. And the final story about Roger, I'm <laughs> the head coach. I was desperate for a quarterback. Uh, Kenny David was a great quarterback, but he was finished. He couldn't run his arm lines. And uh, Giff Nielsen, wonderful Mormon, good kid. But you're like, know, oh, so I talked to Roger. Roger, come on down here. Play with me one more year until I get more moon out of, out of the <laughs> Canadian League. He said, ah, coach, he said, I'd love to, but Tex Ram is not going to release me from my contract to come to Houston especially to play. That's what Roger thought story for you. But... <laughs> Getting back to that game, uh, Earl had a tremendous – I mean, just a tremendous, tremendous football game. And it was, uh, again, one of those games that everybody, anybody who was there or watched on television it will always remember that game.
0: All right. Um, we go to 1980, <laughs> and Dan Passerini ends up being traded for Kenny Stabler. What did that do to the chemistry of that team? Was that harmful, helpful, or –
1: well, it was uh, probably one of the dumbest things that Bum ever did. And he admitted, I'm not talking behind his back, rest his, rest his soul. He was a great man and a great person. But he got upset with Dan for whatever reason. And wanted uh, of the trade I and mean, he did, he wound up trading Dan to uh, Oakland. And Al Davis did a lot of uh, bum as he got older kind of tried to pattern himself after George Allen that he didn't want to use rookies didn't want young guys he wanted veteran players and so he made a, Al Davis took advantage of him he made a couple trades with Dave Casper and uh, and uh, the uh, Stabler he gave up a lot of stuff to get them and they were both they were worse the problem you have with the press they don't recognize a great Hall of Fame, going to be a Hall of Fame guy, is at the end of his career. Yeah. Teams that have that problem, the, the players talk like they was when they were at the peak of their career. The media guys, in most cases, uh, talk about it as they would, not as they are now. And that becomes a tough situation from a coaching standpoint. And some uh, just overdid a little bit of bringing in old guys.
0: Yeah, and actually, you ended up being the one that paid for that later on, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, <laughs> yeah. At the end of 1980, you guys get beat by that same Oakland Raiders, 27-10 to 10 in Oakland. Was there any indication that Bum's job might have been on the line going into that game?
1: No, no, none whatsoever. Uh, none, of, none of us even thought about anything that way. Uh, actually, when we come back from that game, I don't think, uh, anybody had any indication uh, that that was going to happen? Actually, we had a strange situation uh, with the Houston Oilers. Uh Bud Adams had hired a general manager named Alan Hershey, uh who was an accountant. Uh, he came here. He was working for uh, Arthur Anderson in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, Art Modell recommended he wanted to get into football. And Bud hired him. And he was a very, 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 very smart money man. He made Bud Adams tremendous amount of money and all. Bud had like 18 businesses and he straightened lots of things out. Uh, he threatened to move the team from, uh, Houston to, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And that was when Jacksonville didn't have a team, to looking for a team, uh, to make, to keep him from doing that. The, uh, Herzig uh, manipulated the city and to turn out the old scoreboard, the great scoreboard, more part to the tune of about a million and a half dollars a year. So Herzig made, Bud a lot of money, but he wanted to get into football. So, uh, Bud made him the general manager and, uh, bum and lad was like oil and water. They didn't mix very well. That kind that kind of stuff. And, uh, there was a lot of behind the scenes things that, uh, went on back then that, caused Bum to get mad, get upset and get himself fired, wanted to get out of here and he had the job uh with New Orleans in his back pocket.
0: All right, so when you get that job, I mean Bum was your friend. How difficult was it for you to take that job? Was it difficult at all or is it an NFL coaching job, you gotta do what you gotta do, that's just how it is, or
1: well, Mike after that
0: was if I know now,
1: uh what I know then I'd have been a different. i have had a different approach to the job, but back then there was a 28 head football coaching job in the entire world. Now, a guy of my background, I wasn't an all pro football player, etc, etc. When a job like that is offered to you, boy, it's awful hard. It would have been awful hard to say no, turn it down. It's not a good job. You know, you don't know whether you're going to ever get that opportunity again. So yeah. it was easy for me to accept the job. Uh, and uh, you know, there's a lot of problems. and I don't sound like I'm making excuses. But I don't want it to be, be that way. The first year as a head coach, uh, we didn't have a first-round draft choice. Uh, we didn't have a second-round draft choice. We've all given up for Casper and in the trade. So I didn't have a draft choice to the third round. do Receiver by the name of Mike Holston. The next two years, I did what was right for the organization. Uh, probably not right for me, but right for the organization. My next two first-round draft choices were Mike Munchuk and Bruce Matthews, who are now in the football hall of like When you draft people like that, it takes two or three years before they become great in the in the NFL. So I rebuilding the, rebuilding the squad, I was doing what was right for the team probably not was right for my uh, favorite. In fact, Tom Landry, when I resigned, a wonderful person, sent me one of the nicest letters when I resigned. He, he he went through a situation in Dallas where he was one and thirteen and one and thirteen, and they renewed his contract. You know the rest of the story about him. But he realized yeah. the that type of thing. He sent me a nice letter telling me that you know I was doing the right thing, doing the right thing. But you don't always get the finish to finish what you start. But like I said, how can I turn down the job, even knowing it was a tough situation? Just almost impossible to do. And, again, i go right back to stories I haven't probably told publicly to many people, uh, hiring the coaching staff. Well, my first choice uh, for my defensive coordinator was Dick LeBeau. You know who Dick LeBeau is. Great coach. You Uh, had Chuck Studley on that
0: staff, too, didn't you?
1: Well, well, Dick LeBeau, let me tell a story about uh, Dick LeBeau. He had been passed over for the head job at the Bengals. I get hold of him. I fly him. I interviewed him. We talked and make a long story short, he was very interested in coming. Uh, He told me he would. He goes back and Paul Brown gave him a $10,000 raise. Well, he calls me and he says, Ed, he said, uh, uh, I'm not playing you against the Bengals or against Paul Brown. He said, he has given me a $10,000 write, If you can match that I'll be there. Well, the general manager wouldn't give me $10,000 to hire Dick LeBeau. Uh, this is to tell you about front office and people. My next choice at that particular time was a guy by the name of Woody Woodenhofer, who yeah. was the uh, defensive coordinator of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Well, I had no Woody from the days of coaching at Dayton and all those places around there. And I also heard he was involved in a divorce. So I called Woody. I said, uh, Woody. Uh, how about coming down and visiting? Interested in getting out of Pittsburgh? Anyway, he comes down, he visits, and uh, and his answer to me was, you know, when I said, you want to get out of Pittsburgh? Involved in the voice Yeah, coach, I want to get away from that bitch. You, you can appreciate that. So, anyway, the same scenario, he goes back, and the Roonies give him uh, an $8,000 raise. He says, Ed, I'm not playing you against them. If you can match the $8,000 raise, I'll be there. Well, general manager who was tight with the money, wouldn't give me $8,000 or what he wouldn't offer. That's what you go through in situations with front office. And quite frankly, I think Green Bay is going to, is going through somewhat of that right now with their situation. Two years ago, they lost a, a good man in the front office uh, who went to Cleveland and has now got Cleveland on the rebound. Uh, Teddy Thompson has kind re- of retired. Uh, they also... Uh, Lost, when he went to Cleveland, and I don't know the guy's name, but he hired some of their scouts away from Green Bay. Green Bay's draft the last couple of years, and their team, uh, scouting and coaching is, is not what it used to be a few years ago. So that's the head coach who gets his job at Green Bay, may have to go through
0: a very tough situation.
1: That's front office interference.
0: Yeah, and I'm a Bengals fan. I know all about that. <laughs> Well, Marvin Lewis, got a, he's got a halo over his head. <laughs> <laughs> he's got something over Mike Brown's head, I think. But we won't go into that No, right let, me now. Tell you. let me Let me tell you about Mike Brown.
1: Mike Brown's problem is he's a very, very, very loyal person. Yeah. Mike Brown is too loyal to an extent, and that's one of the reasons that I think that situation is as it is. I know an awful lot about the Bengals uh, back in the way back in the 50s when uh, Paul Brown was my idol. He'd gone to Miami of Ohio. He was the you know the first guy with organization, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. I loved him. and thought so much about him. So I actually named my my oldest son Mike after Mike Brown, who now is it, running 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 the Bengals. So I know the Brown situation
0: pretty good. All right, now, another thing people probably don't know about you is the fact that you are one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that Warren Moon ended up being the quarterback in Houston. And you talk about the Hall of Famers you brought in, too, and that is a team that ended up being a perennial team or playoff team towards the end of the 80s. But do you want to tell everybody the story about Warren Moon?
1: Well, that's kind of an interesting story, too. I was desperate for a quarterback. Uh, Mike Halavak, who was, uh, my, uh, my personnel man at that time, gets a call from Lee Steinberg and talks about Warren Moon and wanting to get out of Canada. So, to make a long story short, I arranged to, uh, East West football game. Uh, uh, I fly out to California and right across the street from the airport out there is a restaurant called Olive Garden. I met with Warren Moon then. And uh, we had great, you know, good meeting, good thing. And, and it's kind of funny story, too. He said, Coach, he said, uh, I'm interested in coming to Houston because I want to get out of Canada and we'll get in the NFL. and uh, He said, but, he says, my wife, Felicia, doesn't think too much about Houston. So anyway, like a long story. And I, out of my own pocket, I flew them both in. That was against the rules those days. The, uh, the uh, NFL respected the uh, uh, Canadian uh, players. So they, you weren't allowed to mess with them, but I was desperate for a quarterback to so climb in, put them up in a place called the Guest Quarters over here in the gallery area of Houston. My wife and I whined and died, Warren and Felicia, just like uh, recruiting a, a college football player. I had a friend here back in those days. Daycare centers were just beginning and found out that Felicia was interested in that. So set up a meeting with the people that here that owned a couple of them, a friend of mine, Martin was her name, and you know she talked to him. Of course, they encouraged her back in those days They we were just getting started. <laughs> it's, I, maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but it's kind of cute. And uh, so we drop them off back at the hotel, and uh, wife and I get back home about oh, about nine o'clock, nine thirty. I get a phone call, Coach Warren. Yeah, Warren, what's up, Coach? My wife and I bought a ordered a pizza, and our credit card is max. Will you call the front desk and tell them to put the pizza on your tab? <laughs> How about that one for you, Mike? Well, did you do it? Oh, <laughs> yeah, sure, of course. Definitely, of course. And, and well, the bottom line of what it turns out is that, uh, actually, Warren had a 10-year contract with Edmonton up there. And when he went back and said he wanted to leave to come down here, they told him, well, we'll agree to that. If you come back and play one more year here, we'll let you out of the other nine years on your, in your contract. And that's what happened. He went back and played. Well, in the middle of that season, uh, I just couldn't take any more of what I was putting up with this stuff here with the general manager and people didn't know. So I quit. I retired in the middle of the season. And that next year was when he came uh, from Canada down here. And Warren, he knew, knew that I was responsible for it. He was here for the Super Bowl a couple years ago, and uh, that party that he was at, as soon as he saw me come over and hug me and grab me and thank me for all I had done to start him, so I was the reason that he was here. But that's kind of the Warren Moon story. All
0: right, and then, let's see, from there on, we could say you never coached again, but you did. In 2005, you got to be the head coach of the Cincinnati Marshals in the National (laughs) Indoor Football League. Now... If you've never been a head coach of a arena or indoor football team, you don't know what you're missing, do you, Ed?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Most fun I ever had in coaching. <laughs> well, that's a funny – there's a lot of funny stories in my life. You're making me think a lot of – well, I go uh, I go to uh, – I, I got a son and daughter-in-law that live in Lexington, Kentucky, grandson, and – then they're all uh, they're graduated from college now. But back in those days, they were in school. So I go up there for free Christmas and have Christmas there early and come back here and spend time with my family down here. Well, the Bengals are – I don't remember who they're playing now. And uh, one of my good friends in Cincinnati was a guy named Bob Stackler, the big, biggest law firm in uh, in Cincinnati. He was a bank, he was a lawyer for the Bengals. So uh, we go to the game, the, the football game. Uh, it's on a Sunday, obviously. At halftime, we're standing in the, in the suite there with the you know eating, drinking, and having the I don't drink, but i mean, eating and having that kind of stuff. And the guy comes up to me, and it was uh, it, Patterson was his, was the last night. He says, "Hey," so "All these people out here know you." I said, "Well, I'm from Cincinnati originally. I'm three Hall of fame's here." Said, "I said, yeah, they all know me because they coach there." He said, "Well, you just be the guy I'm looking for." And I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Well, I'm putting together a." indoor football team here. He said, I'd like to talk to you. He said, you want me to stay overnight? I said, no. I said, i got to go back to Lexington. I'm going home for Christmas. I said, "Uh, get home with me after Christmas and maybe we'll talk. (laughs) Anyway, I don't think he liked that, but I didn't care. I didn't have any idea about indoor football. So He's living in Florida. And Anyway, about two days after the first of the year, I get a call. He says, hey, I want to fly you over here, Coach, and talk to you about the job up there had no idea I would take the job. So I said, well, I'll go over and talk to him. I fly over there, and uh, I made all kinds of demands. Pay me this, yeah. Uh, put me up in a place to live, yeah. Uh, give me a car, and travel, yeah. Step, step, the stuff to the point that, the, that I got thinking. I said, well, boy, if I go up there, I'll see all my old buddies. I'll get to see my grandson to play some high school baseball games and have lots of fun. So that's how, that's how I wound up going back to Cincinnati for the uh, Cincinnati Marshals indoor football team. And we had a good team. We put together a pretty good group of, group of guys. We were paying, cheating. We were paying the players more than what other guys, <laughs> the other guys should be. <laughs> I was oh, playing them for – if you have twenty dollars, he's made a twenty dollars run. You got a five dollar bonus. If you got <laughs> eight passes. You got I don't know all the things. A long giving money, and this guy was giving the money to do it. So we were we were way ahead of the other teams. In yeah, North but East. then he ran out of money, didn't
0: he? <laughs> well,
1: yeah, yeah. Now you get to the rest. Now you get to the rest of the story. About three quarters away from the season, and my goodness. <laughs> My good friend from Cincinnati, his, his lawyer Bob Wagner, he told me when I first got to me, said Ed, don't you put any money in this team? I said, don't worry, I'm not that dumb. I put into it. <laughs> and he said, this guy might be a little bit of a con man. <laughs> well, it turns out that he was a good con man. He he beat the uh, U.S. Bank, I think it was up for um, one of the banks, up for about four hundred thousand uh, dollars before they finally caught up with him. But uh, I have been forewarned, so this is funny too. If <laughs> I get my paycheck on Friday at two o'clock two fifteen, I would go across the river to the bank, cash it, take that cash, and uh, I had a good friend lived really you know those anyway, I give the cash to him. I said, "Put this in your checking account when I go back to Texas, send me a check for them <laughs> <And I> that's <thought, laughs> how. Oh, man. man. It was a great experience. Had a lot of good players, good plans. Uh, we had a good football team. We were first played until about yeah. two weeks before the end of the season when the uh, the bank fell apart. And, uh, I said, goodbye, I'm out of here. I'm not part of this. Right. You, you had,
0: didn't you have Brett, wasn't <laughs> Brett Dietz, your quarterback on that team? Who? Brett Dietz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Yeah, because he ended up – I think he played in the main arena league for like a decade after that. He was a good quarterback. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was – well, that's kind of a funny story, too.
1: Try to think of the guy, the the big old fat guy who played at the University of Kentucky,
0: uh, never made it in the the, uh, NFL. uh, Don't don't call him the big old fat guy. I coached Jared Lorenzen, remember? Who? What's his name? Jared Lorenzen? (laughs) I guess that's what it was. Yeah uh Patterson, the guy
1: he wanted to get him, and he was going to pay him all kind of money i said Patterson I said this other guy is a better quarterback i finally could, well he he had uh, my understanding was I make all the decisions football wise obviously i had that. so finally he you know i convinced him to let that guy go play someplace else that Dietz was a better quarterback it it cost him a lot less money for Dietz. <laughs>
0: did the, did the guy you're
1: talking about <laughs> you got me laughing so much now I'm crying <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll see that was funny I, I I gotta do that because every day I, we're gonna have to have you on Survive in Advance it's our daily show at noon I do with Steve Risley uh, this is my question Ed have you ever heard the name Steve Risley
1: S- some reason it thinks I have
0: but I don't really, it's not striking the light bulb ok, good I just I like to ask people that because Steve has a rather large ego because he played on the nineteen eighty one Indiana Hoosiers that won it all and then he likes to brag about being in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. But we'll have to have you on sometime because he brings tears to my eyes every day at noon. So do, <laughs> well, do you? Hey, do, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, do you follow the NFL today? Oh, of course. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, oh, yeah. see, I, I like yeah. Robert Brazil. I've asked you before. You want to come on top? He said, "I don't even watch it now." So <laughs> there are some that don't. No,
1: I follow. I follow it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm here in Houston. You got the Texans who are doing a great job this year. Yeah, I, it's been my life. The sports has been my life. Uh, and it always will be. Yeah, I follow them very closely. Follow everybody pretty closely. Uh, heck, I even play fantasy football with a bunch of my my sons and friends around here in fantasy football.
0: <laughs> well, 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 what what we have to do is I, this: every Friday we have a guest picker on to pick the NFL games. If you want next Friday, you can come on at noon and pick the games with me and Steve. Uh, okay, that's the you, just the winner. Or you got to pick the points. Uh, no, you just got to pick the winner. We don't do the point spread thing because that scares a lot. Oh, of that's off. oh, uh, you can't beat me, you two guys. That's too simple. Oh, there we go, <laughs> and, and I know Steve's listening. Because Steve, you know, gave me a big fuck you since I talked shit about him. <laughs> so, I, I know Steve will be up for that. So, we'll do that. Well, you two that. guys are
1: amateurs, man. Hey, now, wait a minute. I don't want it to be unfair I don't want to embarrass you too. I mean, you're two amateurs and I'm a pro.
0: Oh, here we go. <laughs> I, hey, you got to remember. I you only <laughs> coached indoor football for like 2 years. I lived it for 5. <laughs> but what's in what, what tell me when time
1: out now. Tell me the relationship between indoor football and NFL football. There is absolutely
0: none. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's I <right. laughs> That's what I'm kidding you about, like, that's, what, that's what I'm kidding you about, it. Like, Well, see,
0: and Risley, <laughs> Risley's just a college basketball guy. So, and, and he's from Indiana, so he just picks the Colts every week. Well, see, basketball.
1: Now, now tell him that that's an immoral
0: sport, basketball. Hey, will you tell him right now? Because I know he's listening. So, go ahead.
1: Well, that's immoral. Sport guys run around in their underwear and their shorts. That's immoral.
0: <laughs> well, it wouldn't be immoral if it was like guys against girls, but guys against guys is a little weird. <laughs> uh, I think there's stuff in the Bible about that. <laughs> Let's see. And he's probably a big—he's probably a big Bobby Knight fan. Well, yeah, he played for Bobby Knight. Hey, watch it now. I'm a big oh, Bobby Knight fan that. too. I I'm a Hoosier.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've known Bobby for a long time. I knew what he—he's uh, a good guy. Kidding about, I'm just kidding about the, the, anybody from Indiana is a Bobby Knight,
0: Bobby Knight fan.
1: Well, yeah. Well, there's <laughs> some
0: younger people now that don't know any better, but. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody under 40 is usually a moron, so. <laughs> <laughs> <Don't
1: laughs> they're not behind the ears yet.
0: Don't see, don't I remember, I remember yet. when I was growing up, I'd be like 16 or 17 and I'd do something stupid and my dad would say, well. When you get to be 20, 25, you'll have some common sense. Now I find myself with my own kids. I got a 25 year old daughter, and I'm thinking, well, maybe when she's 30, 35, she'll figure things out.
1: <laughs> no, I got, let's see, my oldest, my oldest son is 65. I got son 63, lives in Lexington, Kentucky, with his wife. They've been there for a long time, and uh, their son lives in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And their daughter, I'm bragging now about her, her she's married. She went to Appalachian State on a soccer scholarship, is now coaching over Oak Island, North Carolina. Oh, this is a cute story She you got time. Uh, she was coached coach, cross-country and track, undefeated, never lost a thing. A year ago, they came to her and said, uh, Adrian, we'd like to offer you the head basketball coaching job. She turned it down. So my son called me. He said, Dad, he said, Adrian, we call her Adrian. Adrian, uh, they offered his job. She turned it down. So I call her. I said, Adrian, your dad tells me they offered you had a basketball job, and she should be an undefeated, doing great. I said, What'd you do that for? She said, Ah, oh, Papa, I don't want to put up with the parents. Cross country <laughs> track, they leave you alone. Basketball, everybody <laughs> thinks our kid, girl's the greatest one in the world. That's, yeah. that's a cute, cute coaching
0: story for you. <laughs> but also, Steve Risley would like to say he thinks this has been a great interview, and you've been a wonderful guest. And I would well, like to you. second Steve on that. And really, we we would love to have you back. I mean, we could start doing this every Friday where you come in and pick the games with us, just to see well if we can beat you. Because Steve Risley's really—you don't have old. a chance. Oh, so. come on, Mike! Don't embarrass Mike. I don't want to embarrass you. you oh, don't Ed, bad. don't be talking crap to me, Ed. We can do this <laughs> if you want. <laughs> I can do it to Steve,
1: not you. <laughs> I like, know Steve, but not you, huh? <laughs>
0: yeah, you'll beat Steve. Steve, Steve's just side of a moron when it comes to football. That, and I said he's that just bas- he's just a basketball.
1: He's a basketball guy, huh?
0: Yeah, he's a basketball guy. He's like six foot eight. He's got this real big head. He, he was, he, he, <laughs> was, he was, he was a quarterback. And that's, you know like,
1: why I played basketball? I not Hey, that's why I played basketball. I wasn't tough enough to be a football. Well, player.
0: no, he he played high school football. And you know Notre Dame <laughs> recruited him. He's like a 6'8 eight quarterback. And but I mean that was probably I, I don't know what happened there. But he decided to play basketball. So and <laughs> Steve said that he thinks that he will dominate you picking NFL games. So he can't wait.
1: <laughs> tell him not. Tell, him, tell him not to bet because you know I'm a poor guy. I want to put food on the table for his family. If he bets, he's gonna lose. He won't be able to feed his family.
0: (laughs) Well, I I would say this. I I think starting, hey, after you've talked all this crap, I'm going to bump my guest on Friday, and you're going to come on Friday and pick the games with us, and we're going to go through the rest of the year if you want, and we're going to see who wins.
1: (laughs) Okay, we'll have some fun.
0: (laughs) All right, so, hey, I want to thank you again, Ed. I, I can tell you, two years ago, I sent you a message. You ignored me. A year ago, I sent oh, you really? a message. You ignored me, Ed. You hurt my feelings because I, I I knew about the integrating college football. You were with Bum Phillips, Robert Brazil, who I really think a lot of, Greg Bingham, Mike Stensrud, all these guys. And I'm thinking, why doesn't Ed want to talk to me? Well,
1: Mike, don't you understand? I only talk to big...
0: <laughs> you only talk to what? Uh, Big-time people. Oh, come on, Ed. <laughs>
1: Come on, Ed. You know, I'm having hey, fun with you, Mike. Roy Don't Firestone serious, doesn't let's...
0: even do interviews anymore. <laughs> <Let's see.
1: laughs> Don't take me serious. As you know, so I say, I'm serious. i have kidding all the time. Man. Mike, I'm 87 years old. Whatever I got left, I'm going to enjoy. I'm going to have fun. Uh, all this other stuff that's going on in the world now is crazy. People should love each other, get along, and I'm just having lots of fun with it. Enjoyed it very much, Mike.
0: All right, Ed, and we look forward to talking to you Friday. I'll give you a call tomorrow about that, and we'll set it up. And Steve likes to talk a lot of crap, okay. too, but it's all in good oh, fun good. because we're best friends, okay. and that's just the way we are. So, all, right, but, all right, All right, guys. I
1: look to, talk, talk. Hey, Bye. I, want to rem-
0: yeah, I want to remind everybody, Jackie Sherrill will be on with us tomorrow on Survive in Advance to talk a little bit of college football playoffs. Uh, I want to thank Ed again for coming on the show and remind you, you can hear all of our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, TuneIn, Spreaker, Stitcher, wherever you find sports podcasts, you'll find the grueling truth. So for Ed Miles, I'm Mike Goodpastor. You've been listening to the grueling truth where the legends speak.